think again. Let's say you had the chance to walk away from a long prison sentence, but to do it, you had to tell a story that would put three of your best friends in prison for something none of you did. Would you do it? Now say prosecutors told you that if you didn't cooperate, if you didn't tell a story they had invented, they'd use the full power of the U.S. government to make sure you and your friends went to prison for a long time. Now what do you say? Four men faced that prisoner's dilemma in 2014, and for them, the choice was easy. They trusted the justice system. After all, they had just fought a war to protect it. We had done exactly what we were sent there to do, and there was nothing to run from other than this, this albatross that, you know, regrettably still hangs around our necks. The government did reach out to me and, and offer uh, a plea agreement, but never consider that because I always wanted to clear my name. I consider myself innocent, and, and I would never accept guilt for something that I didn't do. The government knew I was innocent, but for political appeasement of the Iraqi government, our government decided to charge me for something that I did not do. I was expendable. I was just a poker chip to our government. What do you do when a free press, a democratically elected government, and the public take a joint holiday from reality? When the government literally makes up a story about you and the press just goes with it? My name is Gina Keating. I'm an investigative journalist. I usually write about business, but a few years ago, a friend asked me to look into the Nisser Square incident. The first time most Americans heard about Nisser Square was on September 16th. 2007 or thereabouts. If the name doesn't sound familiar, I'll jog your memory with words that come from the government's narrative. Massacre. Blackwater. Unarmed civilians. Nisser Square happened four years after the United States invaded Iraq, four years after President George W. Bush declared mission accomplished to major combat operations. But Iraqi-on-Iraqi violence rose and American forces were caught in the middle, Body counts rose on both sides. At home, Americans were beyond tired of the endless images of violence they saw on YouTube and cable news, most of it staged by Iraqi insurgents who wanted the United States out of their country. 
A 2007 Gallup poll showed that the tactic was working. Most Americans wanted to shut the whole thing down. And then, on September 16, 2007, this happened. Four Blackwater employees fired guns and grenades into a traffic circle in Baghdad, killing 14 unarmed Iraqis and wounding 17. It was one of the worst killings of innocent civilians by U.S. contractors in Iraq, and a huge blow to America's efforts to stabilize the country. The four guards claimed they were ambushed while escorting diplomatic officials and fired back in self-defense. On a hot Sunday, 19 military contractors in four armored vehicles drove into Nisar Square, a busy traffic circle in the middle of Baghdad. When they drove out again 11 minutes later, somewhere between 8 and 34 Iraqis were dead or injured. The contractors' trucks were pocked with bullet strikes. One had to be towed back to the green zone when shrapnel severed the radiator line. One of the turret gunners had burns on his arm from incoming tracer rounds. It was a firefight, plain and simple. The United States is determined, determined to hold accountable anyone who commits crimes against the Iraqi people. Bill jury in Washington convicted four former Blackwater security guards in the 2007 shootings and killings of dozens of unarmed Iraqi civilians. Life for Nicholas Slatton, who had been convicted of first-degree murder for firing the first shots in the 2007 shooting, which killed 14 unarmed Iraqi civilians. The courtroom, filled with 100 supporters of the four Blackwater Guards, let out a gasp. Then, 30 years each for Paul Slough, Evan Liberty, and Dustin Hurd, all of whom had been convicted of manslaughter. Sounds pretty bad, right? It took the U.S. government three criminal trials to make someone pay for Nisser Square. In the end, two former Marines named Dustin Hurd and Evan Liberty and two Army vets named Paul Slough and Nick Slatton were serving what amounted to life sentences in federal prisons. They were all highly decorated and had spotless service records. The Department of Justice gave its prosecutors awards in the case, even after a national defense attorneys group complained about a laundry list of prosecutor misconduct, hiding and fabricating evidence, and coaching witnesses to get the convictions. The Washington, D.C. media trumpeted that the Nisser Square case proved that Iraqis could get justice in U.S. courts. American justice, they called it, like a brand name or something. It's appropriate here to quote the writer George Orwell, who famously said, in times of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. The story we will present over the next eight episodes can only be described as Orwellian in that the deceit openly engendered by the government and spread by the media is an homage to Orwell's thought police. I had no trouble finding the truth. The government's own documents and the trial transcripts show that it continues to commit crimes in the Nisser Square case. And I wasn't the only one talking about it. My biggest challenge was getting anyone to listen because of those words, the ones the government had welded to this case, massacre, Blackwater, unarmed civilians. As soon as people heard them, their minds snapped shut. 
My fellow reporters, book editors, my own agent told me to drop the story because the prejudice was just impossible to overcome. Everyone but Michael Flaherty, the co-founder of Walden Media and an award-winning filmmaker, he happened to be working with me on another project. Michael is a Christian and a conservative. He homeschooled his kids and tells me sweetly after every conversation, God bless. I'm what people in the heartland and on Fox News call one of the godless liberal elite. (laughs) I think that will be a tough case to make, Gina. To begin with, you live in the heartland. You're a St. Louis Blues fan, a Cardinals fan. I, I don't think you've missed a single game. You went to UT. You always wear burnt orange. And you've gone to the 915 Mass with your father ever since you were a kid. That's actually what attracted me to this story is it's so divisive. Wherever people stood in the Iraq War, people made all kinds of assumptions about their faith, their politics, and where they were from. And that's exactly what happened to these four men and why they're in prison. Mike, we have one important thing in common. Nothing gives us a greater thrill than to kick over a steaming pile and see what crawls out. In our revolutionary act, because that's what this podcast is, we found words like tragedy, loyalty, fortitude, and patriotism to describe what actually happened in Nasser Square. And we talk to people who've lived this story, the people whose voices haven't been heard in the 12 years that they've been caught in a nightmare, the families and friends, and the men who lived it. When it comes to misstatements and you know lies and things of that nature, I honestly, I think the biggest thing that they've said that was a lie was that we were never attacked. You know, I have no earthly idea what a war zone is or what you went through, but I remember saying, son, I need to know. The way the whole proceeding was when you sat down, it was almost like you were having to watch parts of a play being put out in front of the judge and the jury, and it was just all messed up. It's like you're a prisoner of war in your own country. He had no criminal record. He's a decorated war veteran, and then he gets put in prison for doing his job. That's not right. I can guarantee you, you could release all four of those guys right now from prison, and if somebody attacked the United States, they would go right back, knowing that the last time they, they did something for their country, they were, they were prosecuted over it. To understand the forces that collided in Nasser Square on September 16, 2007, we have to go back to where it all started. To understand, as George Orwell said, how the past was erased, the erasure forgotten, the lie became the truth. This just in, you are looking at obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. It started on a day that Americans for once came together to face the worst attack in United States history. So you have no idea right now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. Right. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. My God, it's right in the middle of the building. 
Most Americans have a story about where they were when the Twin Towers fell. It's as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. The sight of those buildings falling over and over on TV for days on end crystallized our fear that we would never be safe again. For others like Nick Slatton of Sparta, Tennessee, 9-11 meant something quite different. My family has a long history of military service. Anytime there was a call, every generation has stepped up to answer the call. And it was instilled in me at an early age that I should serve my country if the country needed me to serve it. Austin Minier is a childhood friend of Nick's. I always looked up to his dad about his military history. You know, he, he's, he's wanted to be in the military since he was a child. You know, when we were kids, Nick would joke about, you know, somebody would ask him, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, my mother would ask him, what are you going to be when you grow up? And he'd joke about, you know, I'm either going to be a dancer or in the military. And he'd say, you know, I can't dance. <laughs> so he knew what he was doing uh, when he was young. And then, uh, you know, as we got older, that was just affirmed. But yeah, he just uh, couldn't wait <laughs> when he could sign, you know. He was ready to go. When he joined the 82nd Airborne, Nick Slatton became a one-percenter, part of the one percent of U.S. citizens who enlist and serve in the armed forces, defending the 99 percent of us who stay at home. I was very proud to be a part of the 82nd Airborne Division. The 82nd is America's strategic response force. We could be anywhere in the world in 18 hours, jumping out of an airplane and fighting our nation's enemies. So I was proud to be a part of that. Got to volunteer twice to be a part of that, once for infantry training and once for airborne. The Slattons have been farming in Sparta and serving their country for five generations. Uh, I knew he was going to do that, you know, even before 9-11. I mean, it was just bred in him and shown to him uh, that you have a duty to your country. And, you know, he always was brought up with that belief. And I just knew that what that was what he's going to do. But I just think 9-11 accelerated. I... On the morning of 9-11, a U.S. Marine named Dustin Hurd and his unit were doing a practice drill at the Armory Compound in Norfolk, Virginia, they were practicing how to recapture a U.S. embassy from terrorists when their captain pulled them aside. Two airplanes hit the World Trade Center, he told them. And we're all like, yeah, okay, cool. This is part of the drill. And he's like, no, really. This is this isn't part of the drill. This is real life. And I know it didn't dawn on me until they actually started passing out live ammunition. And I was ordered, uh, hey, heard lock and load the 50. I went back over to the captain. I said, hey, sir, you know, you're, we're aimed in on a base housing unit. And he said, I understand, but go ahead and lock and load it. And I said, roger that. I locked and loaded the 50, and that's when it really became real, loading the 50 cal on American soil. Dustin was 20 years old from a small town in West Texas called Alney. Alney is a dozen or so miles from Archer City, the windblown town in the last picture show. It's just like the movie portrays it, desolate and grand, more cattle and pump jacks than people. Long before he graduated high school in 1999, Dustin knew he would join the military. I joined the military because I looked up to my dad's buddy. He was a Green Beret. His name was Chris Tackett. He would send me all of his old stuff. Me and my buddies would dress up in military camis and play soldiers whenever I was young. I knew then what I wanted to do. Now it was just 
which one to join. I ended up choosing the Marines. I thought about it for a long time, looked into all of them, and, you know, they say the Marines were a little, little tougher than the rest, a little harder than the rest, and so I was up for the challenge, and that's what I decided to do. Dustin joined up a year before the September 11th attacks. He chose a unit whose acronym is FAST, Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Team. Its mission is to defuse terror attacks around the globe. He trained in counter-surveillance, fighting in close quarters, urban warfare, and personal security. Soon after that drill in Norfolk, Dustin headed to the Persian Gulf. He was among the first American troops waiting at the fast base in Bahrain to invade Iraq on March 19, 2003. Paul Slough's 9-11 story starts like this. He and his army buddies in Alpha Unit 315 were cleaning their Bradley fighting vehicles at Hunter Army Airfield in Georgia. At around 9 a.m., his lieutenant walked onto the tarmac and told his unit that the United States was under attack. The funny thing was, they'd been talking about where they'd go if their quick reaction force deployed to a hot spot. We've been joshing one another that we were going to this place or that place, being as we were on a red cycle, which simply meant we were just a QRF force for anything that would erupt with around the world. Uh, we were attached to a Ranger Battalion and uh, a tank unit. With that, he responded and said no. He was serious. That, in fact, his father-in-law was reading last rites at the Pentagon, and so at that point we knew he was telling the truth. And so we went inside into the uh, tactical operations center there on the tarmac. And I don't know if it was on loop at that point or if we actually saw the second plane hit the uh, second tower. But um, at that point, we knew everything had changed for sure. Rick and Vivian West informally adopted Paul, whom they called PJ, when he was 13 years old. Paul was washing dishes at a cafe in Dickens, Texas, to earn extra money. Rick took the boy on as a hand on his cattle ranch after Paul's parents could no longer care for him. The Wests needed the help, but they wanted their son to see the world someday and go to college. This is Rick West. You take care of this ranch is good or better than I do. And, I mean, you couldn't ask for a biological son to work and do any more than he ever tried to do. PJ was pretty much a realist. He knew that his family didn't have no money and that we couldn't afford it. And he was raised out here with us. Like Vivian said, there's not a whole lot here. So me and him talked about it. And I really pushed him to join the military for the simple fact of getting out there and seeing the other kind of people that's in this world. The little town that we live in, you don't get exposed to a whole lot. And I was hoping, and Paul PJ was hoping to, that he could go to the military and put in his time and possibly retire, but get a GI grant for college. And when he got into the military, he was really wanting to go through the Rangers and become a Secret Service agent. Paul reported to Army boot camp in Fort Benning, Georgia, on Friday, August 13, 1999, in the middle of a torrential rainstorm. He was 19 years old and had never been out of Texas. That would change within a year. He was deployed to Bosnia, part of a UN peacekeeping force. The mission was to keep peace between Christians and Muslims in a half-destroyed village not much bigger than his hometown. To get to meet other people within the world, um, in the Eastern Bloc and even the Middle East, I, I got to understand that we're really not so different, given the, the separations of the regions of the world and. Um, I went in with a lot of preconceptions and come to find out 
a lot of those preconceptions just weren't true. Paul used his own brand of diplomacy to trade his pocket knife for a Russian soldier's beret and medals. He used his Texas Spanish to talk to Portuguese troops who were sweeping for mines around the village. But the communication he enjoyed most was visiting schools with his unit. He had his mother send pencils, pens, and candy in care packages so he could give them out to the kids. The Serbs at the time were still attacking. Um, there was some, even some infighting as far as like, water and resources and uh, the stuff was kind of limited as far as electricity and water. And, and so there was even just day-to-day stuff that we would go with our lieutenant and, and other folks that were there to make decisions and try to help really just in logistics and, and, and to see these people receive fresh water and, and food and medicine and, and get to hang out with kiddos in the school. That was, that was always a highlight. Evan Liberty was cleaning his room at the Marine Corps barracks when word ran through Camp Lejeune that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. He didn't think much of it. He assumed it was a small plane and an accident. He kept on task. When the second plane hit, he ran to a friend's room to watch the news and saw the first tower fall to the ground. In that moment, I basically knew that, that our lives were going to change, specifically the lives of the people in, in the armed forces. So as soon as it happened, we went on high alert. We had to pull extra duty and secure the base. But my thoughts were immediately drawn to what my unit would be tasked, tasked to do. So. Um, going into the Marine Corps, I, I always knew that, that going to combat was a possibility, but it, it wasn't something that was always on my mind uh, because there was no conflict going on at the time. But when 9-11 happened, it made uh, going to combat a reality. Most people wouldn't take a 16-year-old kid seriously when he insisted on making that kind of commitment. That would have been a mistake with Evan Liberty. Here are Evan's parents, Brian and Deb Liberty. Uh, it took me totally by surprise. I thought he would definitely go to college, like his brother was planning on doing. And I didn't even know he had, and Chris had gone to speak with the recruiter. And I do remember at one point when, you know, we realized what was going on, Brian and I were like, we need to go down and talk to the staff sergeant Cooper and make sure that the things that Evan is telling us are exactly how it's going to be. I thought it was a good idea. Even though he was a very, uh, uh, very structured person, he was an old old man even when he was a young boy. I mean, both of my sons were like that. They never got in trouble, like I said, but they were their own man. They made their own decisions, and if that's what Evan wanted to do, that was fine with, with us. Evan and his best friend, Chris Baslovich, were basketball stars in their hometown of Rochester, New Hampshire. They had other prospects, but the two friends, both high achievers, dreamed of challenge and service. Technically, did get to boot camp. I was, I was 17, and I turned 18 in boot camp. I, went, I also went, went to boot camp with my best friend, Chris, from my hometown. And I remember on my 18th birthday, I, I didn't even know it was my birthday, and he he realized what day it was, so when we were in the chow hall, he gave me uh, a piece of watermelon for my birthday present, and he said, happy birthday. The two friends went off to boot camp together, but ended up on opposite coasts. 
Chris went to Camp Pendleton in California and Evan to Camp Lejeune. They kept in touch through emails and phone calls. Chris was not surprised when Evan landed a spot in the Selective Marine Security Guard School. He pursued heavily to go into Marine Security Guard School. So he was accepted into that program um, very early on. Um, so that's just, again, part of who he is. He wants to um, do more and being in you know, MSG duty, you're guarding the embassies, you're, you're there to protect people. When I was in Cairo, I was in Cairo from 2002 until 2003. So I was there when the uh, invasion of Iraq happened and we had uh, a higher threat level because of that. We had a lot of protests and demonstrations in front of the United States Embassy. So we were on high alert a lot in, in the embassy in Cairo. Um, the second Marine Division Evans' unit was on high alert for months, but he never deployed to a combat zone. He was at his post guarding the embassy when the U.S. invaded Iraq on March 20, 2003. What do you remember about the fall of Baghdad, Mike? I remember watching it on CNN with a sick feeling in my stomach. The next day, like a good liberal, I went out and bought solar panels for my house in a feeble protest against war profiteering. I just didn't think we were ready, and I knew the war was going to be a disaster. I was actually excited and hopeful and emotional. It was something to see those U.S. troops, together with those Iraqi citizens, toppling that statue of Saddam. I was also a little naive because I didn't know how quickly things would get politicized, and this entire war would become about, will we find weapons of mass destruction Rather than, we've just gotten rid of a murderous dictator, how do we make sure that we can bring democracy to these folks so that they can live the free and democratic life that they deserve? But there was one man who had been watching the whole show from the sidelines, and he knew exactly what was about to happen. He knew exactly how unprepared the United States Armed Forces were for the fight that lay before them, and he was ready to step into the breach and make a fortune. That man's name was Eric Dean Prince, one of the most necessary, yet vilified men in America. Raven 2-3 is a production of Think Again Studios. It's written by Gina Keating and Mike Flaherty. Our producers are Ashton Smith, Gina Keating, and Mike Flaherty. Executive producers are Chai Ling, Lindsay Fellows, and Valerie McGowan. Mitchell Weinbaum edited this episode, and he also serves as our associate producer, along with Kyle Hartford and Tina Graff. Lindsay Fellows and Aaron Fullen supervise the music. Our theme song is performed by Chloe Caroline. Thanks to Anne and Neil Corkery for their kindness and generosity. Finally, we owe a debt to our men and women in uniform. Thank you for defending our freedom so that strangers may one day enjoy them as well. For more information about this podcast, go to thinkagain.me. There you can find additional research and primary resources regarding the case of Raven 2-3. You can learn about future episodes and receive updates as events continue to evolve. You can also learn more about our future projects, as well as award-winning films, music, and books created by our team. Thanks to everyone who donated so much of your time and talent to this passion project.